This podcast is a ministry of Crossroads Community Church in Hatfield, Pennsylvania. And now, the message. We've been working through a, uh, a series of messages uh, for a while now out of 1 Corinthians, and uh, we've called it A Beautiful Mess. But uh, Pastor Mike wanted to finish strong, so that's why he asked me. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. That's why he asked me to work on 1 Corinthians 15, because that's, that's a strong finish. Most of you uh, know about uh, Corinth and where we are. Oh, oh. Yeah, well, good. Okay, now more. Uh, Corinth, a little city over in uh, Greece, <clears throat> was a very important city because lots of things went through there. It was a trade center. It was a cultural center. Very sophisticated. Very cosmopolitan. Uh, lots of things went on there. It was kind of a modern city. Uh, all the things, all the bells and whistles that any modern city back then would have had. Uh, shops, uh, special temples, places of learning, marketplaces. Uh, there were places where the philosophers would come. And they just had a great life, they thought. It was just a wonderful place to live if you were a Grecian. There was always new people coming through, new people coming into town. They were sophisticated and thought they had it all together. There was pleasure, uh, there was entertainment, there was uh, lots of philosophy, and they discussed everything from economics to physics, politics, um, an endless supply of information came through the town. So they really felt like they were sophisticated. But as the gospel came to town, they discovered that that culture that was pressing on them was really kind of wrecking things. And so the culture had made a mess of their lives without them realizing it, and they brought that into the church. But here's God, by his Holy Spirit, doing an amazing work among his people there in that place, this little band of believers that's growing. And even with all the junk and garbage that culture is giving to them, there's really a beautiful thing going on. So I guess that's why we call this sermon series, A Beautiful Mess, because we're facing with the Corinthians the struggles of living a life that pleases God and really makes a difference in a place that isn't conducive to that at all. In fact, many have suggested that uh, Corinth may be the best example or the best book in the New Testament to speak to the issues of 21st century Western culture, particularly in America, because they had all the same struggles and things that we do. Not that some of those things are wrong necessarily, but they can, they can be wrong. Take technology. I mean, technology is a wonderful thing. We use it here all the time. You use it all the time in your homes, and yet that technology can be misused in some dreadful ways. So they have all these. It's good to exchange ideas and share ideas, but when the ideas of the worldly culture uh, become the desires of our heart, then that can be a bad thing. The only thing that's left of Corinth now is ruins like that. Wow, that's a ruin. That's a ruin. <laughs> Did I do that? Oh. 
so Paul wrote this letter to them. That's probably what the letter looked like when he wrote it. That's exactly, that's actually a picture of the actual scroll that he sent to the Corinthians. Kind of a long one because it was a long letter. You have it in a, in a nicer form, an easier to use form. And in fact, if you want to follow along, if you have a Bible that's in, in the chair racks, it's page 1139. If you brought your own Bible, I'm assuming that you know where to find it. But if you're using one of the blue Bibles, it's page 1139. That's where chapter 15 is of uh, 1 Corinthians. So we want to take a look once again at what's going on here in Corinth, and particularly this matter of the resurrection. Uh, I guess I don't have to say too much more except to elaborate just a little bit on what Ben already shared, because he gave the broad strokes of what this chapter is all about. The resurrection is just foundational. It's the pivot point to all that we believe about Jesus Christ and what he has done and is doing in the world. If not for the resurrection, it all collapses. So we just want to take a look at this because Paul was concerned that although they seem to understand the issues, we're not sure if they really do. So we need to search our hearts on that as well. So let's just take a look at this together. Now, brothers and sisters, Paul says... I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. just wanted to highlight something that he said there. Twice he said it, and I wanted to make this clear. Notice he said twice that Jesus died according to the scriptures, right? And he rose again according to the scriptures. Paul's saying, this didn't come by surprise. This wasn't God's best attempt at plan B. Oh, Jesus died on the cross. What shall I do? No, in fact, he had before the foundation of our world, determined that this is how he would win us back. Jesus going to the cross to die for our sins and raised again so that we would know that his sacrifice was accepted and we were justified before God through faith in him. The resurrection was part of those prophetic speakings of the Old Testament. A couple weeks back uh, in Steve's class, um, actually it's the David in his life and ministry class, but Steve was uh, speaking from Psalm 16, and there we saw David announcing the resurrection, said that uh, God wouldn't allow his Holy One to stay in the grave and be corrupted, but would bring him forth. Isaiah 53, uh, Job 19, many other Old Testament passages seem to speak to the resurrection. And so Paul says, although I didn't see it early on in my life, I came to understand it as I realized what the message was, that even the Old Testament had spoken about this. So what you accepted is certainly something that the Old Testament had written about. This was God's plan from the very beginning, that this is how he would accomplish his will. This is how he would bring us to himself. This is how he would change forever the history of his creation. After that, after Jesus was raised and appeared, first of all, to Cephas, or Peter, after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. Most of them are still living. Now, of course, obviously that means they were still living 
in A.D. 54 when Paul wrote this. They're, not, they're still living today, but at that point they were still living. So if you wanted to go and speak with some of them, you might have done that. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as one abnormally born. He's saying, here's three ways that, or three proofs, I guess, that the resurrection is true. First of all, he says, it was your experience that when you trusted that message, Jesus crucified and raised again, God changed your life. You, can, you see the changes he's making, that he has made and is making. Secondly, the disciples and the other followers were eyewitnesses of those events and of that resurrection. And they bear testimony, many of them, to this very day. Then Paul, in the end of that verse, says, and then there's my own experience, there's my own spiritual journey that I want to share with you. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am and his grace to me was not without effect. Do you remember Paul's situation? Paul was, a, a tr was trained by rabbis. He was a young Jewish man who excelled in his studies and his zeal for his Jewish faith. And when Christianity came along and started to spread, he was opposed to it. Uh, he just hated what Jesus and his message stood for. He felt that Jesus was tearing down all that he counted as sacred in his Jewish faith and was even going from place to place having Christians arrested and punished for declaring what they called the way, salvation through this one who had died. So clearly to him, Jesus was uh, a troublemaker who got what he deserved and went to the cross, and he was gone. And one day, in Acts 9, this incident is explained and described, Paul is on his way to a place called Damascus to further punish Christians that are there. He has letters of reference that he's taking with him for that purpose. And on the way to Damascus, Jesus strikes him down. And he has this moment where he is before the resurrected living Jesus. And they have this amazing dialogue where Jesus says, what are you doing? Why are you keeping to uh, press against this, these people? They worship me, their risen Lord. And Paul has this confrontation with Jesus. And it's as though he's saying to the people, look, I know I don't even deserve to be here talking to you. But I was a hater of Christianity. I hated Jesus and all he stood for. And one day he met me, struck me down, and turned my life around. And the only way he could have done that was that I believed that the one who was speaking with me was the crucified yet risen Jesus Christ. That changed my whole, the whole direction of my life. I haven't been the same man since. The direction and purpose of my life has changed ever since. So there's these three things. First of all, you've seen the gospel effect in your life. You know that eyewitnesses bear, bear testimony to his resurrection. And you know my life and background and what a difference it made in my life when I came to him. So he goes on to remind them. I worked harder than all of them. I think just out of a sense of grace. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. 
So whether then it is I or they, so whether you're hearing this message from me or from James or Peter or one of the other guys, whether you hear it, this is what we preached and this is what you believed. So let me just remind you that from the beginning, you believed in the resurrection. And that message had a transformative effect in your life and is now continuing to shape you as a church. Yeah, there's lots of days where you're a mess and things aren't going all that well. And there's uh, because of the influence of the uh, kind of corrupt culture around you, um, there are problems, there are factions, there's backbiting, there's even some false teachers, but you're dealing with it and you're making something beautiful out of the mess that's the church at Corinth. But that's because you believe in the resurrected Lord. The resurrection really is the, is the pivot point of the Christian faith. Without the resurrection, our faith collapses. Now, Paul goes on then to consider, what if there is no resurrection? Ah, there they are. What if there is no resurrection? Because evidently some of the philosophers that were influential back in that day were saying there is no resurrection. There's just the body. There's just life in this body, and uh, let's make the best of it, and uh, let's forget all this silly, superstitious stuff about the resurrection. The resurrection is hooey, they would say, which is, I remember that, was, that word was very popular when I was younger, so it's just, that's nonsense. All this resurrection talk is just nonsense. It's a, it's a silly way to live your life, hoping that there's something beyond this life. Just live your life here the best way you can. And that kind of thinking from some of the philosophers was very influential. There were some of the philosophers who just said, look, since this life is all we have, just go for it, enjoy it, uh, abandon every code or rule that somebody would place on you and just go for it. So this is having an impact on their thinking and they're kind of working things through. They know they believe the resurrection, but they're not sure they're really applying it to what's going on in their lives. Now, I know that most of you believe the resurrection because it's in your doctrinal statements. And if you, no, because if you go to Pastor Mike's class, his membership class, it's one of the things that's in that little book that you'll get, and, and you'll affirm a belief that Jesus was resurrected. So it's up here. The question comes for me, and this is something I wrestle with all the time, is what's in my head? Has it ever percolated down to my heart? And does it work out through my hands or my behavior? And that's what Paul wants to get to. See, but let's just start with your mind for a minute and consider the possibility that there is no resurrection of the dead. So he says, work this through with me. Now here's where that note sheet will come in a little handy because I wanted to make sure that you followed all this. It sounds a little bit repetitive, but let's take a look. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. More than that, we are found false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead, but he did not raise him from the dead, if in fact the dead are not raised. I did it again, didn't I? What did I do? Is that me? There we go. Okay. Okay. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you were still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. 
and if only for this life we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Now, it sounds like he repeated himself several times, but I don't think he did. Okay, whatever the one before that is, Steve. So I, I want to look at, at two issues that he deals with. The first one is he deals with the issue of truth. So he says, let's think it through this way. Let's just logically think it through. If there is no resurrection, if that's not possible, then Christ was not raised. I know there are witnesses who said he was. I know that I told you that I met with him on the Damascus Road. I know that you feel he made a difference in your heart, and he couldn't have done that if he was dead, or he could only have done that if he was alive. But lots of people, lots of voices around you are telling you that's just a superstition, that's wrong. So if there is no resurrection, then Christ was not really raised. You're just making that up. You're just trying to convince yourself. And if that's true, then all the preaching I've done that emphasizes the resurrection as the key, the pivot point of changing your life is useless, and your faith in that message is empty. In fact, we lied, because we told you that God raised Jesus from the dead, which if there is no resurrection, he could not have done, so we're lying to you. So just, just from a logical truth point of view, he says, if you don't believe in the resurrection, then the, the truthfulness of our message is just out the window. But then he said there's another thing to consider, and that is the outcome. What's the outcome of this? So let's think it through from a different point of view. Not just intellectually, but let's see what outcomes change if there's no resurrection. Well, he starts the same way. No resurrection, then Christ is not raised. And not only is your faith empty, but it's futile. You can wish and wish and wish with all of your heart, but it won't make it true. That's not faith. And consider this, we're still in our sin, or as I say here, our sin is not forgiven. Because we say Jesus died for our sin. We say Jesus hung on the cross bearing the punishment and shame of our sin. The only way we know that's true and it was accepted by God is through the resurrection. So there is no resurrection. How do we know that his sacrifice for our sin was forgiven, that was accepted? We don't. So for all we know, we're still in our sin. We're not yet forgiven. And even more crucial, that means those who have died in Christ are just gone. So your friends who believed in that same message that you're believing in now, they're just dead and they're gone. Their bodies are decaying in the grave. There's nothing more. That's all. And we are, of all people, most to be pitied. Or as I say here, oh no. That's the outcome. If there's no resurrection, not only are we believing a lie, but even worse yet, all that we, we staked our lives and futures on is foolishness. The dead are just gone and lost. And we are of all people most to be pitied. And about that point, I thought, because I was trying to decide where to stop the chapter when I was... And I thought, that this would not be a good place to have ended the message. I was just kind of thinking it through. You know, There are some natural break points in the chapter. And I thought, no, got to rule this one out. Because this would not be a good place. I was, I was trying to think like if there was a reflection and response time, what would I say? Because you know, this is, but Paul says, I, I need to make you aware that this is the issue. We lied. There's no truth to it. And secondly, you're lost and you're still a mess 
and you're pitiable. That's why in the whole chapter, verse 20 has to be like my favorite verse. But Christ has indeed been raised. So let's go back to that. I'm going to consider, first of all, the objections of the culture around you who tell you you believe in a lie, but you know in your heart, you know from the evidence of witnesses, you know from my own shocking, scandalous testimony of faith that Christ was raised, he is living, he is making a difference. So let's get back to that. And he's not only that, but he is the first fruits of those who will be raised. I don't know. Yeah, this is... Okay, there we go. There must be something wrong. just want to talk a little bit about first fruits, because that may be an unfamiliar term to some of you, and I don't want to spend a long time here, but uh, first fruits have nothing to do with apples or oranges or bananas or grapes or anything. I know it sounds like fruits would involve something like that. But the first fruit celebration is something that goes back into the Old Testament. There's a particularly interesting discussion of it in Leviticus 23, if you want to look at that later. Basically, this was the beginning of harvest times. Right after Passover is that, that first little bit of the harvest comes in, and they were supposed to take that first bit of harvest and present it to the Lord. And the priest would take it and wave it before the Lord as a thanks to the Lord for giving us a harvest again. In fact, you weren't to use any of the rest of the harvest until you had given thanks for that first bit of harvest. So this grain offering was called the offering of first fruits. What does that have to do with things? Well, because the first fruits thankfulness ensures that we believe that the rest is coming. The rest of the crop will come, we'll be able to use it, enjoy it, nourish ourselves with it, and we believe that God has given it to us just as he does every year as we are faithful to him and he is faithful to us. So now he wants to go back. By the way, this passage mentions Adam. I'm not going to say much about Adam except to mention that he's here in this verse because later in this same chapter, uh, Paul talks a lot more about Adam and his role in the unfolding of all these things. But for right now, here's what he says. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says everything was put under him, it is clear that he does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. Oops, skip one. Ah. So here's his point about the first fruits. Here's what he's saying. Just like the harvest, where we have our first fruits, and that kind of assures us that the rest is coming, that's how it is with Jesus and the resurrection. We know that he was raised. The only question is, will we be raised? Because that's kind of crucial. Knowing that Christ is raised is important because we know our sins are forgiven and we are right with God. The second question is, will we also be raised? Paul says, yes, 
We know that because Jesus was the first fruits and the rest of the harvest is coming. Now, it won't come until the end when he comes back and his kingdom comes and then those of us who belong to him will also be resurrected. There's each thing in time. The resurrection is coming for each of us just as surely as Christ was resurrected. But he said, let's for a moment get back to the possibility that there might not be a resurrection, and let's consider some of the consequences. Because if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? And if the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? Uh, Those of you who study the Bible on a regular basis may know that this verse 29 is one of the most uh, discussed verses in the book of uh, 1 Corinthians, but I won't get into the detail of all the the discussions and thoughts. But here's what Paul's saying. Some of your friends have already died. And if there is no resurrection, then we know from the previous section... Uh, back uh, in the three verses before this, that if there isn't a resurrection, then your friends who died are lost. They're just gone. You'll never see them again. Forget about them. Put their pictures on your nightstand, whatever you need to do to keep their memory alive, but they're gone. They're just gone because there's no resurrection. Don't hope there is. You're wrong. You're misguided. You're confused. Just forget about it. So then why would I want anybody else to follow down that same dead-end street. Why would I want you to trust Christ as Savior? Why would I invite you to do that, be baptized? Because, as we know, Paul's presentation on baptism is this. When we're baptized, we are immersed in water, which reminds us that we have died with Christ. And when we come back up out of the water, we are raised or resurrected to newness of life. So every time somebody is baptized, and how many, have you all been to a baptism here and kind of cool? Really? It's really cool. It, when next time Pastor Mike does that, you really need to be involved in that because it's really exciting to see people do that. And when they come up out of the water, they're reminding and proclaiming that their lives have changed and now have a future. Now, why would I want to feed you that hooey if it weren't true? Why would I want to lead you through the steps of baptism if it didn't really mean anything? So Paul's saying, why would I want other people to come into the church and sort of take the places of those who have died before them if this was all just something that we made up? That would be silly. So if there's, no baptiz- if there's no resurrection, let's just not trouble our friends to go through all of this. Because once you die, you're just gone. Then he takes another step. If there is no resurrection, then why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I face death every day, says Paul. Yes, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus our Lord, I fought wild animals in Ephesus with no more than human hopes. And what have I gained? I'm not sure if he actually faced wild animals or not, or if he just saw the the people who were attacking him in Ephesus and were opposing him. Uh, were like wild animals and had animal instinct. I'm not sure which it was. 
But he says, because I'm a minister of the gospel and I go around telling people that they can be saved through faith in Christ, I get lots of opposition. I face lots of hardship. Now, if we only have this life and that's it, why would I want to talk about that and just get abused? Do you remember he was in Athens one time and he was talking about the gospel, presenting it to a lot of teachers and thinkers up on this hill, this prominent hill in, in Athens. And when he got to the part about the resurrection, they laughed and scoffed. He said, why would I want to go through that every day if, if I knew the resurrection wasn't true? Why would you want to face hardship? Why would you want to face the challenges of life? Sometimes now you walk into a room, maybe at work, maybe at a family gathering, and people go, oh, no, look who's just walked in. Look who's here. Because they know that you want to talk about your faith at some point, and they just don't want to hear it. Why would you go through that? Why would you face that opposition, those hardships, if the message wasn't true? So if there's no resurrection, why invite others to follow Christ, and why would you endure hardship and opposition? Finally, if there is no resurrection, if the dead are not raised, then let's just eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. But do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Strangely, maybe for you, uh, the second quote about bad company is actually from one of the uh, writers in Greece, a fellow named Menander. Anybody ever read any of Menander in the original Greek? Okay, I, I, I haven't, but I know he said this. The first quote, though, is from Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament. Because he realized, and Menander realized, and Paul realizes that if there's no resurrection, if there's nothing beyond this life, then just go for it. Let go and live it up. Huh? Doesn't that make sense? Why would we want to torture ourselves? Why would we want to, uh, to live a life that we believe is godly if there's no judgment? If we're never going to have to give an account for what we've done in our lives. So he says, if there's no resurrection, why invite others to follow Christ? Why endure hardship and opposition? Why not just let go and live it up? Does that make sense? I mean, it, if we're wrong about this, then let's just go for it. But here's the thing. We're not wrong. People who don't want to believe in the resurrection, in the face of all of the evidence, they're the ones that are fooling themselves. Maybe it makes them feel better that they don't have to give an account of what's done in this life. Maybe they don't have to give an account for what they think and what their heart longs for and what their hands do. Maybe they're bitter against God for some reason. They just don't want to come to grips with his grace and what he's doing. And I'm not sure what goes on in their hearts and minds, but we know that there is a resurrection. The resurrected Christ is changing your lives. The moment you trusted in him, you knew that by his spirit, he had done a work in your life, begun, and that it's been going on since then. You know that he's continuing to prompt you to follow him more closely. That's why you're following him. You know that the eyewitnesses of the New Testament can be believed and counted on. You know that Paul's own testimony is striking. And you've seen, even down through your years, the testimony of others who have preceded you in the faith, and you've seen what a difference it's making with them. 
You see how he's taking lives and changing them and transforming them and their character. You know better than the Corinthian culture or even the 21st century American culture. You know there is a resurrection. So if that's true, Paul says, come back to your senses. There are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. He's saying, look, there are some people who don't know what Christ could do in their lives because you're not showing them in your life what a difference he makes. So he's getting back to some of that mess part. He said, because your lives and your church is still a bit of a mess, uh, there are others in the community around you who just aren't seeing the big picture of what God can do in a life. So let's get back to what we know is right. Let's get back to living to please the Lord. Let's get back to following him. Let's get back to loving one another. Let's get back to knowing what Paul calls in another place in Philippians, the power of the resurrection. He says, you want to know that in your life, that the Lord is really working. We are convinced that there is a resurrection. So we encourage others to follow him. Think about this. If there's a resurrection, if our lives have meaning beyond this life, if the day of our death is not all that there is, if that's not the end, then what I do today, the influences that I make for the cause of Christ today, have eternal impact and influence. So now, I want to encourage people to follow Jesus. Because I know that they then come under the promise of the glorious resurrection too. If they put their faith in him and follow him, now they have the hope of the resurrection as part of their life too. And that's great and that's good. So not only do I refrain from inviting them, I encourage them to come and follow the Savior. The other thing is, if there is a resurrection, if there's something beyond this life, if I will stand before God in his presence and see the glorious Jesus Christ, then I will patiently endure opposition and hardship when it comes my way. See, if there is no resurrection, then it's just that why am I putting myself through this? Why am I... Why am I facing opposition and hardship? Why would I do that if there's nothing beyond this life? But if there is, then I patiently endure because I know there is a reward for me in heaven. And I know that the things that I do, although others may oppose it, are for their good and for God's glory. So I continue to endure because I know that my life is making a difference. And thirdly, as he says in that 34th verse, it makes me come to my senses and stop sinning. My life really matters today. It really matters that I'm overcoming sin. It really matters that I'm on the road to recovery. It really matters that I'm displaying to the world uh, a life that's different, that isn't just lived by the rule that if it feels good, do it, that I'm living by uh, another calling on my life, that what has, my head knows to be true has soaked into my heart and is making a difference in the way that I live in every way. And I desire to stop sinning, not because somebody said I have to or because there's a rule that says I must not, but because I really want to live holy for Jesus Christ, who died for me and ever lives, and that I walk with him day by day because he's resurrected, and one day I'll walk with him in glory because I will be resurrected. Paul says these are the things we need to come back to. If the resurrection is true, if we really believe it, then it changes all the aspects of our life. It changes how we share our faith. It changes how we put up with the hardships and struggles of this life. And it impacts how I live for his glory.
Make no mistake, if there is no resurrection, if we're wrong about this, go out and do whatever you want. It was nice to see you here for this hour. We all enjoy getting together, drinking coffee together and singing. It was great. But if Jesus really died and rose again, if my heart and life are really lifted up like we sang about a while back, then that ought to make a difference in what happens in our lives and how we live when we leave this room and leave this building. It really ought to make a difference. And that's the struggle I have. I don't know about you. Um, Because I know what the Bible says. I've spent a lot of years studying the Bible. Uh, Many of you have also. You know what the Bible says. You got it pretty clear up here. You understand Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians 15. You go, yeah, yeah, he's right. There's no truth. There's no hope if it's not true. But then tomorrow morning I wake up and, and, and I've got to focus on that resurrection day by day. That I'm living a life in light of the resurrection. Jesus was raised and so one day will I be. I have already been raised spiritually. My soul has already been raised from the penalty of death when I trusted in Christ. And I was raised to newness of life. But I'm looking forward to something yet future where even my very body will be raised. What kind of a body will it be and how will all those things happen? Well, that's in the next passage and you've got to come back for that. Because we all want to know about that too, right? But the point is, if the resurrection is true, it ought to be changing my life. And it ought to be changing yours too. It ought to be making a difference in the things that really count. In the way that we live and the influence that we have. In fact, in just a little while, I'm going to give you a chance to kind of reflect on that and respond. Maybe you just want to respond right where you are in your seat. Pray to the Lord and just ask him to forgive you for being kind of a doubter. You've been coming to church, you've been listening, you, know, you believe all the right things, but they haven't yet gotten into your life yet. And that's troubling you because you know that if there really is a resurrection, then the way you live today and tomorrow really matters, not only for tomorrow, but for all eternity. And that's kind of where you are, like I am, just trying to think, what are the implications of that in the way that I live? Then you need to respond to God and ask him to uh, forgive you for your um, lack of interest in those kinds of things and really embrace the resurrection for all that it is. Um, I'm going to have a song, uh, Even Me, that I think really makes a lot of this personal for us and thinking about how much Jesus loves us and what a difference it's made that because he loves us, he died and rose again. What difference will that make in your life? Thanks for listening. Intro music by bensound.com. Visit us online at crossroads-cc.org.